Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Be sure to visit robertjmorgan.com where you'll find Rob's blog posts, podcast feed, bookstore, free resources, and more. If you've not already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review. Now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Hello, everybody. This is Robert J. Morgan. If you follow me on social media, you perhaps heard the story that I'm about to share with you because I shared it as a Facebook Live story on Christmas Eve. But there are some people who don't follow social media, but they do subscribe to this podcast. And it's such an incredibly true story that I wanted to take this opportunity of sharing it with you here. It really comes out of a tradition that I had when I was the pastor of a nearby church. Every Christmas Eve, I would write an original short story and read it at our Christmas Eve service. Most of those were, well, almost all of them were fictional stories. It's the only fiction that I've ever written. But there are a couple of true stories that I've shared along the way. And this story that I used for this year was absolutely true, and I'd like to share it with you now. It is a war story, and every word of it actually occurred. It's the story of a small ship built to carry 35 or 40 merchant marines and only 12 passengers. The name of the ship was the SS Meredith Victory. It was a rather humble cargo ship, one of the 531 so-called victory ships built during World War II to ferry supplies to our overseas troops. Compared to the gigantic naval vessels that were on the high seas, this was a pocket-sized ship, only about 400 feet long and 62 feet wide. I was born in the days of the Korean War. It started in 1950 when Joseph Stalin and Mao Zedong gave the green light for North Korea to invade South Korea. On June the 25th of 1950, some 75,000 North Korean soldiers poured across the 38th parallel and invaded their brother nation in the South. The United Nations responded by sending UN forces to South Korea's defense. 90% of them were from the United States, which was just beginning to recover from the trauma of World War II. General Douglas MacArthur, commander of the United Nations forces in Korea, entered the war at Incheon and drove the North Koreans backward, liberating Seoul. He not only wanted to save South Korea, he wanted to destroy the North Korean army and occupy the entire peninsula so that he could unify the country. That was a bridge too far. His strategy provoked the Chinese to enter the war, and hundreds of thousands of communist soldiers suddenly poured into Korea, sending shockwaves through the White House and Pentagon. Mao Zedong ordered his army to destroy all South Korean and American forces. On December 9th of 1950, General MacArthur ordered his overwhelmed forces to retreat to the city of Hungnam. There, they would hopefully be evacuated. 
Well, back home, Americans were getting ready for Christmas. They were talking about Walt Disney's movie, Cinderella, which had been released earlier that year, and listening to Frosty the Snowman by Nat King Cole. Those with televisions were excited about a new show called You Bet Your Life with Groucho Marx. But there was little reporting from Korea, and most Americans had no idea of the impending disaster facing their sons and brothers in uniform. People were busy with the holiday activities of the Christmas of 1950. Meanwhile, a world away, as Siberian winds howled across the Korean peninsula, 100,000 Allied troops and tens of thousands of refugees were trapped in a small area south of the Chosen Reservoir. It was the coldest winter in what was called the Coldest War. The Americans and their Korean allies were trying to break out toward the sea along an icebound corridor leading to the port city of Hungnam, where evacuation by sea was their only hope. The temperatures were 20 and 30 degrees below zero, dropping to 40 degrees below zero at night. The snowdrifts were up to 10 feet deep, and the howling winds never stopped. If the men paused, they froze to death in their tracks, so they had to press on beyond human endurance. Later, these survivors from the Chosen Reservoir evacuation would call themselves the Chosen Frozen and the Chosen Few. It was so cold their guns froze solid and the pipes and radiators of their vehicles ruptured, hindering their escape. The American Navy covered the withdrawal with air and naval bombardment, but the Marines ran out of mortars. That led to one of the strangest twists of providence that you can imagine. Even as I tell you this, I can hardly believe that it occurred. The endangered American sent out an emergency radio request for 60-millimeter mortars. The Marine code for these mortar rounds was Tootsie Rolls. The Marine who was operating the radio kept repeating, We need Tootsie Rolls. More Tootsie Rolls. Get us Tootsie Rolls right now. The guy on the other end of the transmission in Japan tried to make sense of the message, but he didn't have the code sheet. The next morning, planes flew over the embattled Marines, dropping their cargo, but instead of ammunition, it was crates of literal Tootsie Rolls, the candy, thousands and thousands of actual Tootsie Rolls. But this is what saved the Marines' lives. They stuffed their pockets full of Tootsie Rolls. The candies were frozen solid but would melt in the mouth after about 15 minutes. And that's all the Marines had to eat because their food was frozen as solid as bricks. The sugar and the milk and the chocolate and those Tootsie Rolls gave the Marines the energy to keep going. But the candy served another purpose. As I said, because of the sub-zero temperatures, the fuel lines and radiators had burst. But the Marines learned they could chew the Tootsie Rolls to warm them up, then apply them like putty to the brakes and the pipes and in the pumps. And when the candy hardened again in the cold, it served as an effective sealant that allowed the vehicles to continue on to Hungnam. And so through the snow... And through the vicious winter and the bitter cold, 100,000 American troops and an equal number of Korean refugees arrived at the port city of Hungnam, where all was chaotic and miserable. It was the week of Christmas, but there was no celebration. The communists were gaining on the masses. The retreating, uh, the retreating troops were loaded onto military ships, but it was left to other vessels 
to try to save as many refugees as possible. By now, the communists were in close proximity with orders to kill or to capture as many as possible. Captain Leonard LaRue had entered the harbor on December 20th with the Meredith Victory to deliver 300 tons of highly flammable jet fuel. In amazement, he stood on the deck at Hungnam and trained his binoculars on the shore. He said, I saw a pitiable scene. Korean refugees thronged the docks. With them was everything they could wheel, carry, or drag. Beside them, like frightened chicks, were their children. Since this was the merchant marines and not the U.S. marines, Captain LaRue was under no orders to aid in the evacuation. But he decided without hesitation to help as many as possible. This ship had no mine detection equipment, no doctor, no interpreters, no lighting or heating in the cargo holds, and very limited sanitation facilities. The only weapon on board was the pistol in Captain LaRue's belt, and there was no time to offload the jet fuel. An officer later said, The refugees were loaded like cargo into our five hatches on pallets. They were, or rather on pallets. They were placed into every cargo hold as well as onto the open deck. We had little food or water for them. The holds were not heated nor lighted. They brought many of their earthly possessions with them, and children carried children. Mothers breastfed their babies with another child strapped to their backs. Old men carried children together with whatever food they had saved. We had no interpreter, but they must have had some understanding we were taking them to safety. In the meantime, the Chinese were closing on the beach and had closed off all land routes south. Captain LaRue worried that a single spark would detonate the 300 tons of jet fuel, which would ignite what would be the worst sea disaster in naval history. And his fears grew worse when he learned that some of the refugees were building fires on top of the storage drums to stay warm and to cook their food. Crew members quickly extinguished the fires and signaled to the Koreans that any spark of fire was forbidden. The crew of the victory ship had hoped to save a few hundred refugees or even a couple of thousands. But as they loaded more and more of the freezing souls on board, the number rose up to 10,000, to 11,000, to 12,000, to 13,000, and on to 14,000. Captain LaRue didn't believe it was possible. He said that it seemed as if the 800 tons of steel that made up that ship had stretched itself out to make room for everyone who came. Out of those 14,000 refugees were 17 who had been wounded and five women about to give birth, which they promptly did on board the ship, making 14,005 souls. One of the other merchant sailors wrote home and described what he was witnessing as best he could. He said the original plan was to fill our lower holds with cargo and then take a thousand troops on top of the cargo. Upon arriving at the pier, we got word that we were to load North Korean refugees. In the meantime, an intense naval and air barrage was going on. 
The perimeter was two miles in depth now, so we were within two miles of the front lines. You could see the lineup of people as far as you could look. Old people maimed on crutches, kids still trapped, uh, still tr strapped to their backs. They are packed in just like sardines. There were no toilet facilities, no water, no food. He said the whole ship just stinks to high heaven from the excrement. Not, never have I wanted to be home. As I have this Christmas, he said, with all this death and destruction looking you in the face everywhere, you turn with a feeling of utter helplessness. One just feels that he has had enough of this war. As the, sh as the ship left the port, the harbor exploded in flames as American demolition crews destroyed everything that might have aided the enemy. Captain LaRue and his staff sailed for two days and on Christmas Eve arrived at the port of Poussin to discharge their human cargo. But port officials said, in effect, there is no room for them here. More than a million refugees had already flooded into Poussin and there was no more space. Captain LaRue later wrote that it was jarring to realize that on Christmas Eve there was no room in his little ship and its for his little ship and for its humanity, just as there had been no room for the Holy Family in Bethlehem on the same night so long ago. The next day, the third day, Christmas of 1950, the ship navigated into the tiny harbor of a nearby island. There was no dock, so landing craft were used on the heaving seas to ferry the refugees to shore, getting the 16,000 weak and dazed persons across rough waters was precarious. Incredibly, though, there had not been a single fatality on the trip, and there was none now. All were safely offloaded onto a welcoming shore. In the process, the Meredith Victory accomplished what is called the largest humanitarian rescue operation by a single ship the world has ever known. The ship now is known in history as the Ship of Miracles. All in all, with all of the evacuation efforts, with all of the naval vessels, the entire effort saved the lives of about 100,000 servicemen and another 100,000 refugees. One historian said, Never in recorded history have combatants rescued so many civilians from enemy territory in the midst of danger. Someone later asked Captain LaRue how he was able to make the decision to rescue so many people so close to an enemy in such a small ship loaded with aviation fuel. In response, LaRue just reached over and touched his Bible, which was lying nearby. He said, The answer is here. Greater love hath no man than to lay down his life for his friends. He said, I believe God sailed with us those three days. Not a soul perished. Time after time, dangers that threatened to explode into disasters were miraculously averted. He said, I think often of that voyage. I think of how such a small vessel was able to hold so many persons and to surmount endless perils without harm to a soul. And as I think, the clear, unmistakable message comes to me on that Christmas tide in the bleak and bitter waters off the shores of Korea, that God's own hand was at the helm of my ship.
Well, from a miracle our lift of Tutsi rolls to a miracle evacuation of refugees, we cannot help but believe that God's own hand was in charge of it all. And on this Christmas tide, as we look around a world filled with wars and rumors of war, at the teeming masses of a confused humanity, we have a clear and unmistakable message, one that we'll take into this new year. The Lord Jesus Christ, who laid down his life for us, rose again to pilot our ship and to guide our lives. We look to him, and he rescues us from sin, death, destruction, and hell. And it is his hand, and his hand alone, at the helm of our lives, that can guide us out of the cold and into the heavenly harbor. That's what gives us the victory. Well, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for listening to this story from the Korean War. And week by week, for digging into the riches of the Bible with me. I hope that you will tell others about this podcast and ask them to subscribe to it as well. And remember to check out my website, robertjmorgan.com, with all of the resources there. This episode was produced by Joshua Rowe and the marketing company, Clearly Media. Audio editing was by Jared Brummett and print editing by Sherry Anderson. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And may God be with you until we meet again.